What's up, y'all? Welcome to Conversation Piece with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where we talk about the missing pieces of the conversations we're already having. Shout out to all our returning listeners, and a high five and hello to everybody joining us for the very first time. I appreciate y'all being here with us in 2024. My guest today is a domestic, same-race, baby scoop era adoptee, born and raised in New York and based currently in Los Angeles for the last 30 years. She's also a screenwriter and personal essayist whose writings on adoption and the adoptee experience are some of the most powerful that I have personally ever come across. And therefore, it is my honor and privilege to welcome Mindy Stern to the show. Mindy, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my gosh, Patrick, thank you so much for having me. It is an absolute pleasure. We've been connected on the Instagrams for quite some time, I think. And I, before we hopped on, you know, you gave me a nice compliment. And uh, now that we are on, I just want to reciprocate all of those compliments back to you. I mean it when I say the way that you write, and we're going to get into it, is some of the most powerful writing that, you know, helps me to learn and to grow, particularly this last piece that you put out and shared with us. It's incredible to see, and it is uh, um, a real boon, I think, for our community as a whole. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. Um, <laughs> as of this recording, you just got back to L.A. from Budapest. How was your flight, and how are you doing? I'm great. I, um, you know, maybe a little tat lounge, but I <laughs> <laughs> okay. Flight was long, but, you know, all good, all good. Happy to be back in some warmer weather, but um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you do well with jet lag? Um, you know, I'm I'm old, so yeah, <laughs> I don't do as well as I used to. But you know, fine, fine. I mean, I fine. I think you know, my first night back, I went to sleep at seven thirty, and last night I went to sleep at eight thirty. So, All right, so you're slowly building up. <laughs> yeah, I may have a different, you know, at 4.30 today, I'll have a different answer for you. <laughs> but for sure. Right I appreciate now. you making the time today. Um, so I gave you a little bit of an intro coming in, but for folks who may not know who you are, who are listening or watching this right now, do you mind sharing a little bit more about yourself? Not at all. Uh, so my name is Mindy Stern. I am a writer. I live in Los Angeles. I've been married I've been with my husband for 30 years, almost the entire time I've lived in LA, and married for, I don't know, 27 or something like that of those 30 years. And we have two young adult kids, 25 and 23, who are awesome, three crazy dogs. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, my career, I had a, a career before writing. I was a clinical social worker, and I worked um, with children and adolescents and then in geriatrics uh but the dream was always to be a writer and um i finally pursued that when i was 40 um i was writing like at night when i had mm. this other job plus you know being a, a mom um and i guess i just it was meant to be at that time i had some some more things to say than had I actually started writing younger and <laughs> I see you know, I, yeah. that is a benefit of aging. Um, and I started as a screenwriter and had some, you know, little bit of success, a movie on Disney plus and a web show that was on MGM and a lot of, a lot of things that have not been made, but that have been, you know, purchased or optioned. And I started writing personal essays about adoption I think in like 2017, uh, it's been a minute. Um, and, you know, that just took off. That was never the plan. <laughs> um, and it's 
you know, my writing, personal essays in general, but my writing about adoption is the most meaningful work. What it's the work I'm most proud of, uh, mm. gives me the most fulfillment. Um, and, you know, connecting with people like you through my writing um, and hopefully changing the narrative a little bit through my writing is kind of feels like my life's work. I love it. I am, I couldn't be more aligned with that changing the narrative piece. And I feel like, again, I keep praising your writing, but I'm going to continue to do that uh, through the next 45 minutes or so. Um, <laughs> I do feel like you are adding to that discourse. And you, like you said, you know, you've been writing publicly, at least since 2017. And I do feel like you can, when it comes to that shifting of the intangibility of that narrative, things that you can't see, um, and can't quantify, when you read your pieces in particular, it does feel like you can feel something shift inside of you. So I hope as an adoptee, I feel that and I hope other people feel that as well, because I know you don't write sp solely about adoption, but those pieces definitely hit in a way that we need within this community. So I appreciate you doing so. Um, so you have shared that even as a kid, you always knew you were going to do like a search for your first family, which is a potentially crucial part of the adoptee journey if you choose to go down that path. Was this always a part of your identity not the search piece but the adoption adoptee related aspect of it was that always something that you like claimed and leaned into that's such a good question i i would say yes it's always been a part of my identity obviously the depth of that has changed over time um but uh, a story i've written about is i was in nursery school and on the bus uh so i was you know five years old i told my little nursery school bus buddies that I was better than them because my parents chose me and their parents were forced to keep them. <laughs> mm. Toxic adoption narrative, oh, number yeah. one. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I learned, I mean, I've known that story. Like, I don't necessarily consciously remember it, but right. my mother was called in to the school because, you know, the bus driver is a tiny little preschool in, in suburban New York. And, uh, you know, that this was, like, so she lied. And I had, I had kind of been a little bit of a pre creative storyteller from birth. <laughs> always had um, it, always had it. <laughs> exactly, right? Because our life is a lie. So we're, yeah. we tend to do that pretty well. So um, uh, the school didn't know. And, and when confronted, you know, why didn't you tell us? My mom's answer was, I didn't want you to treat her differently and i learned that piece i think mm. you know within the last several years i asked her like well what like why didn't you tell them you know these things that kind of like i i re-examined over time sure. and i didn't want to, them to treat you differently is what she said and you know that really has stayed with me because i from a young age was always like i'm adopted i'm adopted well i'm adopted mm. like in many respects. So I, I kind of, it was like a badge I wore proudly, um, with, and, and had a very strong imaginary connection to my birth mother. Um, I had been told that I was kept by her for the first three months of my life. So for me, that story, you know, was she, she loved me. She gave me away because she loved me. I mean, it's, it's like the story is infused with all that stuff that we're all told, right? right? Like she loved you so much, she gave you away. The script, Talks yeah. Adoption the Number script two. that we were handed once we were adopted. Exactly. Yeah. So I never saw it as, 
consciously, not as like a bad thing, something not to tell people, at least younger. That that changes for a period of time. Um, but yeah, it was always part of my identity. I like that you put your mom on on not on blast but like put her up against the wall a little bit just as a preschooler already going around <laughs> and parroting the 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 dominant narrative of adoption but then she's also kind of a little withholding of it in a, in a way it's kind of like it, it, it's a perpendicular situation sort of a hundred percent and I think that's really well said and I do put her on blast often as anyone <laughs> who reads my work knows. so yeah I probably started then um, but I even, you know, as a teenager, which also this is not a unique story, you know, some 16 year old fight saying, don't tell me, you can't tell me what to do. You're not my real mother. Like, mm. you know, so my story is dotted with this contradiction of being like proud, but then also kind of broken by yeah. it. Right. Like, I don't know if I ever said this to my mom, but definitely thought it and definitely have heard people be like, you're not my real mom when you're a teenager because you're also a teenager. And it's like, right. this is the way that you act, I guess, uh, according right. to society. But was that like a, was that also fueled by this, this idea that, oh, I'm adopted. And now my thoughts about this part of myself has shifted. Sure. And I think it's probably, uh, the answer is yes. And I think some of it is, you know, like stereotypical defiant adolescent right. behavior. But I think there's also, which is different for adoptees, is you know, you're going through the natural separation process anyway, mm. right? Like that's sure. the developmental stage. So you're supposed to be pushing back and doing that. And sure, we have, that's like a hook we can hang something on as adoptees. If we're not adopted, you find something else to hang it on. But I think what makes it different and and atypical is that we are, I, th I think for many of us and for why, why for so many adoptees, adolescence is so rough and kind of the beginning of a, of a lot of roughness is that we're separating, but there's not really an anchor to hold us. Like sure. there's not a tether, right? right. Um, and so I think for me, it was just that much harder because I started to feel angry. Mm. Um, I started to feel, I was angry. Um, and I didn't have a place for that because who was I really angry with? Everyone. Right. Yeah. How are you? It's like, how do I articulate this? I don't have the language and I don't have the, even right. the foundation to base it in. Exactly. Were you writing about any of this at this time? You know, I was, yes, I was writing. I had a lot of journals, <laughs> some really cheesy, uh, Cosmo inspired poetry. <laughs> there was it. this like fantasy mother thing. I don't have any of it. I wish I did, but I, um, but it was there. Like the, mm -hmm. the writing about this was always there. And then I do have my journals from college. And what's incredible, I recently reread them. I didn't even, oh, okay. I didn't realize in like a stack of journals that I've put away, I didn't realize that they, some of them went that far back. I thought they, they were actually only from uh, when I got to LA. Mm. And I was writing pretty much the same thing. Like I was writing about grief. I was writing about not fitting in. I was writing about uh, your journaling, not publicly writing right. yeah, about yeah, yeah. Um, 
wanting to find her, about thinking, you know, that she kind of held the answers to, you know, that I, maybe I would stop being in pain if I yeah. if I found her. Um, you know, what was it like to see those and and go back through those journals? Did you was there was are, are there any things that like really stuck out to you outside of just like oh the 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 core of what I'll be talking about now is was already here? Um. Well, that stood out the most. Yes. Like, yeah. wow, I, I was already tuned in, like, even though I didn't realize it. Um, but what stood out more, you know, I think was just how much pain I was in mm. and just how much that was related to adoption. Like this sense of the damage the cleavage did, right? Like what that meant not to i was not uh my adoptive mother and i are not a fit on almost every level mm. um and i think i longed I, I think she um i now have language for i think you know some of the ways that she felt about me um you know that the the things about me that i now love most about sure. myself yeah. were pathologized and were demeaned. That's a tough situation to navigate. Not only the yeah. internal, but when it's external too, it feels like, it really feels like you're on an island and Very you have so. nowhere to go. Yes. Um, so you you stated that you knew you always wanted to be like a screenwriter and a writer and like that was always your goal, but you worked in social work for a while first. And obviously like you have all of these different things going on and from my perspective, you had come to consciousness very early on, Come, came out of the fog, I feel like, and started to deal with some of these um, more difficult, more unarticulated things that we go through as adoptees. But were those things fuel for you to go into social work? Was that like, oh, this is why I'm going to do this? Or was it just like, okay, this is the career that I've wanted first? Such a good question, because the answer is really hilarious and pathetic <laughs> um and so i like it so adoptee on well every adoptee wants it um this is how i got into social work i moved to la so i was an art history major in undergrad started okay. to pursue you know was always like more like who i am is a creative right yeah um and started to pursue a master's in art history also dropped out of that was like what am i doing Ta -da, got a job in the shoe store in washington dc that's where I, I went to school and i had some friends from undergrad who lived out here and they were like you're a fucking loser all you're doing <laughs> is selling shoes why are you selling shoes still in dc like come be a loser with us like you can be so they lived in la and my best friend called her dad was in real estate, had some apartments. She was like, we'll even get you an apartment. I was like, okay. So <laughs> I called, I was, only people my age would remember there was this like kind of high-end shoe company called Joan and David. I called the Joan and David in LA and was like, hey, you know, two guys, I was like an assistant manager of the store at the time and in DC. And so do you have any openings? Well, come, we'll interview you, we'll see. And I was out in LA the weekend of the riots in 1992. Okay. And I was offered the job, but it was like, you need to be out here in two weeks. 
So I was like, okay, I can be out here in two weeks. Like there was, you know, it's just so impulsive. I mean, that, yeah. that, you know, <laughs> it was just like, whatever, you know? Yeah. Here I come. And <laughs> like packed up my, and my parents, I think were like holding on for dear life. And I was like, okay, no, now the answer is me moving to LA. Sure. So they were very supportive. Um, and you know, like they paid to ship my car and, I moved out to LA very quickly, moved into this hilarious, disgusting apartment in an amazing location in Santa Monica. And I went to work in the shoe store. And one of my very first customers was this woman, this lovely woman, whose name I will not say here because she's actually not that lovely. And <laughs> she was asking me, oh, how'd you get out to LA? You know, typical, you know, I'm, I'm obviously chatty, like chatty retail yeah. conversation. And I said something about being adopted. I said, well, actually, it's funny. I, how I framed why I moved out to L.A. was like to get my shit together. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm a mess. I'm here to get my shit together. I'm adopted. And I'm actually hoping to find an adoptee, like a therapist who specializes in adoption. Oh, and she said, I'm adopted and I'm a therapist who specializes in adoption. I should have wow. run for the hills, right? But I was like, <laughs> it's a sign. Right. And I got into that. She, so she was a clinical social worker who went to USC. And I think part of, you know, as adoptees, especially, you know, we have no, we don't know who we look like. We don't know where we're from. We have like no mirroring of any sort. Right. Um, and, and also just side note, you know, I was raised to be this, the good Jewish girl, which social work is sure. like a very good Jewish girl uh, career. And Joyce is the therapist's name. I'll, I'll just say that. And uh, so I got into therapy with Joyce. And I didn't have, I was desperately seeking this idealized mother figure. And I looked for it sometimes in toxic. I found it in friendships that were toxic. I found it in, you know, like there was, I was just desperately like, find her, find her. Find that mother who is going to take care of me and love me and be like me in the way mm. that I need. Yep. And Joyce became that person. And so that is why I got my master's in social work okay. was because I wanted to be like Joyce. It's interesting how those small interactions like can lead to really potentially life-changing situations. Yep. And your that story reminds me so much of my own initial interactions with other adoptees, specifically Korean adoptees. And it's unfortunately the, the, it was great, but also not so great. And like that, like those initial interactions, those first like four or five months, if I wasn't doing podcasting, if I wasn't doing the John Chi show, I don't know that I would still be in this community because it ended up not being what I thought I needed. I, it, but it, because I had never found it before and it was just like, oh, this is it. Like, oh, yes, I found my people. That's and right. it ended up being a very good lesson for me to know that, okay, not everybody in this community is on the same, like, is is who I need to always be with. Like, it, I don't need to be friends with everybody, and that's fine. But at first, it was like, I got to impress all these people. I have to be, I and then I need them to be that mother figure, that father figure, whatever it is, this familial right. thing that I never right. had. That I guess right. I'm search like now realizing, oh, I've been searching for this my whole life. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think for her, you know, she ended up being, you know, like 
doing some really unethical, problematic things. And, um, you know, I left therapy with her and found another therapist. But but as cliche as that, everything happens for a reason. And I was very proud of my career as a social worker. I, I mean, I knew my husband a little bit as a friend, but we got together like right the, like the week of my orientation of, you know, mm. my first year of graduate school. And the work I did, because you're required when you're in a clinical program, clinical social program, you're required to be in therapy. And so like a lot of the work I did on myself at that time um, was just, you know, so essential. And also I was yeah. learning all like all the attachment theory stuff. I mean, mm. there's so much that ends up being healing for me in that experience sure. because I, it wasn't just the therapy I was doing, but it, and, and even Joyce and, and her, you know, some of her damaging stuff ended up being grist for the mill. It was, I could then work through it with another therapist and really look at like what I was looking for. But my, my path is riddled with, you know, women that I idealized where I did not use any kind of uh, there are no breaks. Let's just say, sure. like, I love you. You're perfect. Like, yes. oh my god. Like one friend, even ironically, her mother is an adoptee. I remember, but you know, like I, when my adoptive father passed away, I was, I, I got some money, and I wanted to buy myself a car because I, you know, I drove this old Volkswagen that that didn't have lap belts and <laughs> shoulder belts with the lap belts, and it was like always this joke by friends for like we're not getting car but we're gonna like slide right out and so when i got that money i wanted to buy a new car but i didn't like go around and look for new cars right this one idealized friend like i just got the same car as her then there's like another idealized like so it took me a long time to to look at that and be like oh i see what i was doing but being you know the years as a social worker served me in that way It, it it helped me grow as a human tremendously. And of course, now as a writer, because I sure. have a deeper understanding of this, how we humans work um, and and how I work. Yeah. What you was know? your writing like at that time? Like, how did you, obviously you're learning so much, not only about yourself, but about this whole experience. How did that shift what you were putting on the page and in your journals because I feel like you can see a lot of that surface now in the articles that you write publicly about adoption. Yeah, I think interestingly, it's it's it kind of goes dormant for a couple of years. I mean, probably like my papers were, you know, I don't know if that anything about adoption was. I I can't remember if anything about adoption sure. came into like like kind of papers I wrote about attachment theory. I mean, it should have. One would think. <laughs> I'm not sure it did. <laughs> Um, well, it makes sense. But, yeah, exactly. I think yeah. more, um, you know, I was falling in love. I was occupied with other things. Sure. And I think that, um, you know, I did actually, let me just back up for a second. Probably now that I say this, why it went dormant in those years I was adopted in New York, sealed records, and I did shortly before moving to LA, I applied for what's called non-identifying information. That's all I was okay. entitled to get. And I then moved to LA and that envelope arrived 
maybe I was living in LA for like three months, four months. So I was pretty new to LA when my non-identifying information came. Okay. And so it was the first time I saw uh, she had brown hair and, you know, green eyes and she was 5'5". Five five. Um, he, which whom I had never thought about as anything more than a donor, you know, right. um, uh, was also brown hair and blue eyes and he was interested in the Peace Corps. And so for me, I always had this, you know, like kind of lefty, um, social justice part of me. And it was so satisfying. Just, it said they broke up before she knew she was pregnant. He didn't know. I think it bullied me for mm. several years. And, but it also is, you know, tremendously overwhelming, right? Like, yeah. it's like the fan is like that little piece was so much yeah. that I could not. It, it was on hold then. It was like put away. That that envelope was tucked in my journal. And I think that I, it just, it all just went. Yeah. Uh, for several, for many years. Sure. I really appreciate you sharing that because I think when we think about this journey and getting any kind of information, a lot of people just, even adoptees, can feel like when I have the information that's like, okay, now I'm going to keep going. Like I'm going to keep going and keep going. And I've had enough conversations with folks to realize that for a lot of us, it ends up being kind of this, okay, let me pump the brakes because I am now seeing even on paper information that I thought I would never have. And even if it's not like contradicting the story that you've always been told, it still is it does something in your brain, I think, that makes you feel like, I don't know, it, it's just like, it, it just, it doesn't feel like a barrier, like an old barrier, like it feels like almost like a new barrier in a way. I think it, I think it creates so much vulnerability. Sure. Yeah. And, and I think you just, because for every piece of information you have, it's more real. Right. Like, yes. And the more real it is, the more the facade starts to fall, right? Mm, yes, um, exactly. And so I think, you know, and now, because now I'm in reunion with my father, you know, now I found everyone, I can look back at that moment and understand it even better because sure. it's like, yeah, no, it, it fucks you up a little bit. Yeah. You know, it's well, gratifying and fulfilling right. and, and also... <laughs> yeah it's like yes i have this and also like okay wait everything around me is inside of me maybe is now falling back apart everything that i put together has now like crum crumbled and cracked a little bit let me take a beat let me get back to this um okay so you mentioned that you know you found everyone now you are in reunion with your first father um you i i heard on on a podcast that you did that that particular thing happened very quickly if i'm remembering correctly you took a <laughs> dna test on ancestry and met a first cousin and then that well, very quickly led to um something well, else no my dna was up for several years oh, before okay, the first okay, cousin okay. hit gotcha, yeah gotcha, and gotcha. i had had um when after i found my first mother and she had already died and i had connected with her mother who had, you know, given me her husband's name, which ends up my, my birth mother's husband's name that ends up being yeah. a really important breadcrumb. 
I eventually reach out to him you know, a couple of years later and he gets me in touch with some of my brother's friends. And gotcha. so I get, they get put me in touch with some other people. And then I, um, and I, no one knows anything about who my father is. Like no one mm, has even okay. an idea. Gotcha, gotcha, and then gotcha. I, um, I once probably a little wine fueled night. <laughs> my husband was probably out of town. Kids were probably asleep. <laughs> I decided to set up a classmates.com page as my birth mother. Um, Interesting. Not as myself. So her name was Gloria Gerwin, and I knew she had gone to UNC Chapel Hill, and I figured I thought I was correct on the year. And so I just set up a page as her and did not tell anyone I did that, kind of forgot about it. And months, I guess, who knows? It's I don't I, I did not write all of it down in terms of the dates. Probably months later, I like check my email one night and there's Gloria, you have a message. I was like, uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> what the fuck did you do, Mindy? And the message was, Gloria, is this really you? Do you still wear Ginette? Which also that is maybe a reference only for people at a certain age. It's like a really, um, you know, like a, a drugstore perfume popular okay. at a certain time. And um, do you still wear Gina Tay? I would love to connect with you. It's Kay. I'm so glad I found you. So I then had to respond to this Kay Campbell and decide how I was going to respond. And I remember calling my husband in and being like, okay, listen, I didn't tell you I did this. <laughs> but now I have a really big fact of wrong. As I said, you'll see the through line for me is impulsivity. Like, sure. So it's anything like didn't think any of it through. And I just, you know, responded with the, like, I'm so sorry I was duplicitous. This is who I really am. This is what I'm looking for. I'm desperate to find my father. I just medical information, whatever. I said they did it in college. If you, I, you know, if you can like forgive, you know, she she died. I'm so sorry yeah. to have to tell you this. Turns out she was a social worker, and <laughs> and she was amazing. And you know this. That she got all their friends from freshman and sophomore year. She had lost touch with Gloria after sophomore year. Um, they rallied around me, this group of Southern women. They all said the same thing. You don't know what it was like to be a woman back then. You don't know what it was like to be a woman back then. She had no choice. She had, you couldn't be a single mother. Um, but they they all remembered this one name, mm. Vinny Jafuni. And like that's not a name you forget. And also I'm these like, were yeah, like these like waspy <laughs> white Southern women. Gloria was yeah. Jewish, although she hid that. So Vinny Jafuni to these like Southern women who he was from New York. Gloria's brother had lived in New York City. Like, you know, they remembered him. And I was like, Vinny Jafuni, I can find that in no time. <laughs> and I did. And I called Vinny Jafuni and said I was Gloria Gerwin's daughter and she died. I was writing a book. You know, I lied. And would he be willing to talk about his memories of her? And he was like, oh, my God, of course, you know. And as soon as he was receptive, I was like, well, listen, okay, this is really why I called you. And I'm wondering, like, do you have siblings? Do you, like, you might be my father. Did you have sets of Gloria in, like, the spring of 1967? And he had no children. He was like, shit, this is awesome. <laughs> and Vinny Jafuni, uh Thank God was not my biological father. We ultimately <laughs> DNA tested. But over the course of time, he became, he was like clearly a raging alcoholic. Mm. He 
I recently Googled him and I know that he's passed away, which is why I'm saying his name in this story sure. so freely. <laughs> um, and he had no children. Like, I don't think there's anyone to come at me with any beef. Um, he, you know, was clearly like a raging alcoholic and started calling me at like all hours. He was in New York. He'd call me at mm. crazy hours and it just berate me. It's not, you have a good life. It's not like you were locked in a closet beaten with brooms. Like it, it was horrible. So yeah. those, t the, and then he sent a picture and I was like, this is not my father. Like, I mean, he has blue eyes, but like, it's not like you, you think you'll know and you, and sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. And I was just like, like, and showing it to my husband, you know, friends, yeah. like, do you think that this, and everyone was like, uh, no way, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. and then, and mind you at this point, I did already have one picture of Gloria. So, you know, okay. I, I knew that I looked like her. Anyway, it wasn't Vinnie Jafuni. So then I stopped. I was like, I can't put myself through this anymore. I'm not doing this. I'm done. I have a great life. Like, just be satisfied with what you know. Um, and then commercial DNA popped up. Okay. And gotcha. it was, you know, new. And I was like, well, that's kind of a passive way of doing it. You know, and people had said, like, well, why don't you, what about hiring a private investigator? And, and I just was like so morally and ethically opposed to that. I mean, no, no judgment of people who do that. Sure. But I was like, fuck that. Like, it's, this should not cost me a penny. Yes, like, this is my right. Like, what do you mean I have to spend thousands of dollars on a private investigator? Like, no, I just like out of principle refused to do it. And not that I didn't, you know, I would re rethink that, but I would always come back to that same thought of like the unfairness of it i just could yeah. not stomach you know again no, like no no judgment to anybody who does it that's just where i landed For um sure. so anyway i put my i did 23 and me wasn't even around yet it was only ancestry i put my dna up there eventually 23 and me came around i did that jed match i did that and just waited and i figured if it was what was meant to be in my life it would eventually show up and I would check, you know, kind of compulsively for a while and then nothing, nothing, nothing. And I stopped checking. And then mm. one day, one morning, April 2018, I got like a promotional email from them, um, from my ancestry. And I was like, wow, like, when's the last time I checked my ancestry account? And I checked it. It was, I think, April 23rd, 2018. And there was a first cousin match and it was a somewhat unusual last name. And I Googled him, you know, the the first cousin, Henry Minas mm -hmm. was his name, and found his Facebook was public. And I started like looking for a face that would maybe look familiar or a man that was older. Didn't find anything, but I noticed that all the Minuses, that's last name, were in Savannah. And mm -hmm. so then I Googled Minus Family Savannah, and it was like a bonanza, a lottery win because the Minuses are the very first settlers of Savannah, Georgia. And oh, they wow. were Jews. And uh, so there's tremendous amount of information about them on the internet. Um, and I then, um, one of the pages that I found was like a horizontal um, family tree. And I was looking for someone born in, assuming the information was true, I was looking for someone born in 1945. And I found someone born in 1985, 19, I'm sorry, 1945. And, you know, it it just didn't take me too long from there. So from, from it was fast. Yeah, from sure. That from 
waking up and logging on to finding him was two hours. Wow. Okay. So I had, I didn't want to apologize. I'm like, okay, (laughs) I got the story completely wrong. It's just that I only had the very tiny end bit of the story. Yeah, no, that's okay. Don't apologize because also, you know, I have not, I don't really know how, how much I've like fully ever talked about. I don't think I've really even written I don't think I've ever written the Vinny Tafuni story. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing that here. <laughs> so um, here we are. Shout out to not being related to Vinny Jafuni. Yes. But for kickstarting some of some some of these things. Um, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. That is wild. Shout out to Kay and the women who helped you kind of get again, find your way along this path and being able to get to where you found yourself in 2018. Um, do you remember what your first like thought or reaction was to finding him on the family tree? Yeah. I mean, like crazy heart racing, adrenaline, um, you know, texting from my friends. And I remember my, my, um, daughter was home from school. She had slept at a friend's. My son was at Coachella. My husband was somewhere. So I was alone in the house and like, Oh my god! I'm like giving like you know these insane real time updates, um, and then finding his picture on the internet mm. and like you know any doubt I had was I mean I knew I'd found him but then I saw the picture yeah. um, right. and I ended up I have a friend who's a private investigator and I called her and I started telling her and I remember at some point like. <laughs> 30 seconds and not long in just stop there i would have told if you would have got me i would have told you you had him 10 minutes ago kind of thing you know like yes it's him like yeah um and i you know i had i found i had two half sisters i have two half sisters and one of them okay. is on facebook and i i once i found her name and i i, I sort of actually i think i ended up finding like her husband's profile before i found hers and see and i look like twins with her even though we only share a father um and i am 15 years older than her Mm. something like that um it was like breathtaking um it was breathtaking and i i was very you know like we talked about what it feels like you you get these breadcrumbs right and and some people are able to just like mow ahead and some people need to 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 stop and it takes years and and i i think the stopping with each piece of information is the more common a little bit more common version because i think that the digestion process is so intense and overwhelming um you know um so i sat with it for a few hours and thought that I would go slow, but I did have his phone number. <laughs> That's not very long. <laughs> and no. And also, I, re- I remember maybe my husband was home. Maybe my daughter was back home. I- People were had returned to this house. And yeah. I hid. I, I was like, I can't tell anyone I'm doing this. Because they were all like, take a day. Please sure. take a day. And I was like, hi, how minus? <laughs> this is... <laughs> And I called him, I remember hiding in my bedroom closet and 
he didn't answer and leaving him a voicemail saying, mm -hmm. I was Gloria Gerwin's daughter. She passed away. I was writing a book about her. Uh, I found his name and her papers from college. Uh, if, if he remembered her, would he call me back and be willing to speak about her? And I, of course, didn't think he would call me back. The next day, I reached out to my half-sisters. They That was immediate. Um, and mm. I remember I actually I had a script at a company that had been optioned by a company at Warner Brothers. And I had a, it was like I had a bad cold. I had this really important development meeting at Warner Brothers. And I was also waiting to see if these people would reach back out to me. And I was so grateful in the meeting. You know, I couldn't have my phone on me. I had to like, no. try to focus through the Sudafed on my work. And finally, after like a two-hour meeting, walking out back out to my car, looking at my phone, and my sisters had emailed me back. Um, so that day was spent connecting with them and pictures. And it turns out our father was going to be going down. He he was retired and lived in on Cape Cod, but they lived in North Carolina. He was going to be visiting them. And they were going to tell him about me because we all agreed he was never going to return this phone call. Mm. Um, and the next morning, my daughter happened to be home and was in my room. I was getting dressed for the day and she was sitting on my bed and we were just talking and the phone rang. And um, I looked at it and I said, holy shit, it's that number I called yesterday. And my daughter picked up her phone and recorded it on video, which is an astounding thing to have. Uh, yeah. And he initially was like, oh, of course I remember Gloria. And in the video, you see me go like this because I know that it must be him. And then I tell mm -hmm. him and then, you know, <laughs> goes a little differently. Um, you know, and he, he it just was he was in shock. Obviously, I said, I know you don't know about me. I don't want anything. Um, and, and it was very I asked him about the Peace Corps. Yes, he had gone to the Peace Corps. You know, it was very cordial, awkward, bizarre, uh, as weird as you think it was. It, it was, it was. Um, yeah, plus 10, probably. Exactly. And then yeah. I told him that I had reached out to his daughter <laughs> and he was not happy about that. And he got real angry. Um, my daughter actually stops recording. <laughs> 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 Let's keep the fairy tale alive. Yeah. Um, and I was really proud of myself. I stood my ground, which this is like this lesson for every adoptee. I learned from that moment, every adoptee who goes through this experience, as so many of us do, where I said, um, no, like, I'm sorry that, yes, it was impulsive. Yes, I could have waited for you to call me back and give it more time. That is fair. Right. But I will not accept the charge that it was not my right to reach out to mm. them. Um, this is my story. They are my sisters. I refuse to be a secret. I am a human being and I am a human being first. And I uh, deserve and I'm allowed to tell whoever I want to tell. And I, I stood in that space. And, you know, Patrick, had I found him 20 years, 10 years, maybe even five years before, I would, I would don't, I would not have had the wherewithal, the courage to stay in that truth. Um, and I probably would have crumbled a little bit and, and begged for forgiveness. And I didn't. I said I was sorry. I understood why sure. I was upsetting to him. But um, I didn't cower and I didn't grovel. Um, and I, you know, I hung up and I probably cried a little bit. But I'm, I'm, I think I was more just like trying to breathe. 
and and say, you know, you did what was right for you. Yeah. You know, tears of relief almost, I'm sure. Just being able to so. do that. Pride. I think so. Know? Very proud. Yeah, very, very proud of standing in in that place. And then like t- I went out and I like, did some errands. I remember running into a friend in the market who was like talking about all this other stuff. And I was like, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Yep. I was cool. like, I'm fucking shocked <laughs> and trying to just go about my day like a normal human being. And I had a, you know, I driving to my next errand and he called me back and I started to cry when I answered the phone. I was so scared. And I said, he said, it's how minus skin. And I said, I and he said i'm really sorry Mm. i'm really i'm really happy you found me and i spoke to my daughters and they told me how great you are and they sent the pictures and i can't believe how much you look like us and i'm sorry for what i said and I, you know, said, I'm sorry, I didn't wait. And he said, no, you're right. Like, you did the right thing. And Hell yeah. I was like, yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we were on the phone for about two hours. And the end of it was, you know, to be continued, which we joke because sure. that's kind of our line still, to be continued. And then, you know, over the course of the next, like, two weeks or so, there were lots of conversations. And... I remember he he called me. That was a Tuesday, I believe. And on we had a he we set up a call for Friday. He said, I, I, I just can I talk to you tomorrow? Yes, okay. Or even that morning. And he said, I want to clarify something for you. You said, because on my on the non-identifying information, it said that both of his parents were professors. And that was one of the ways that was made it easier to find him too, was that his okay. mother was a professor. And in the 60s, you know, there weren't a lot of female yeah. professors, right? So that also made the, the Google search once I had the name, you know, uh, uh, fruitful. Um, and he said, but my father wasn't a professor. My father was a writer. Wow. And not only was his father, my grandfather, a writer, um, he was a screenwriter. And he started as a playwright, uh, and his first produced television project was an original movie for the Hallmark Channel, and my first produced television project was an original movie for Disney+. Plus. You know, so when we, when we talk about why it matters that we know, you know, I mean, I, I can I'm so grateful. My my path, as I said, like becoming a social worker, like these things made me a better writer. Like everything, I needed to live my story, right? I yeah, needed to get absolutely. to here, as we all do, to ha- have the strength to cope with all of it, to have the foundation in, in my family that I created, in my marriage, and the friendships I have, to be able to withstand all of it. Um, but there was... You know, there was a part of me out that it was like so much fucking wasted time. Mm. And I know, I, you know, you can't allow yourself to go there because no sure. time is wasted, right? Like you have right. to live in that more spiritual place um, and of gratitude and all that. But to say that I didn't feel that, you know, would be a lie. 
Sure. A hundred percent. Wow. Um, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that with you me could. and with us. And it makes me think about, again, like you, like you said, why this matters, why it matters for us to be the writers of our own stories, to be like, to, to be able to take that and live it. It makes me think about my journey and how I'm able to pinpoint specific moments in time. And like, this is, if something would have happened slightly differently, if this would have not happened at this moment, what would have happened in my journey? I can't, I kept thinking about that as you would, as you talk about these specific moments in time, it makes me think about you and the, the like, this is your, this is your movie. This is your book. This is your story. Like the, there's no other way for me to even think of describing it other than this is, it could only have happened this way and you made it happen this way. And like, had you not went in the closet and sat down to make that <laughs> and left that voicemail in that way and had this first conversation not went the way that it did, had you not reached out to your half sisters, like all of these moments that could have went slightly differently, but didn't because you were able to then from all of the all of the context that has happened before each moment to be able to do those things man so i, I don't even know i don't, honestly don't even know what to say other than thank you because it's yeah it's just it's just really really incredible and i love it for you thank you i love it for thank you. you thank you i uh yeah i mean it's um you know, I then I fell into a major depressive episode after finding him. And I think, you know, you hear so many adoptees talk about right. that. And because, you know, it's almost like you, you trudge this path, right? And then you get to the end and all of a sudden it's not that the, it's not that it's ended at all. It's it's that you're actually at the beginning again. What I really appreciate about the way you've just told and laid out your experience is that it is so, to, at least to me, apparent what it means to be that main character, what it means to actually find yourself living that life and then writing and telling it, not just because you're a writer, but because it is like when I talk about what does it mean to pick the pen up for the first time? and put the pen on the page. This is what I'm talking about. So anybody out there listening who has heard me write about this or talk about this, like this is literally what I mean when I say why it's important and what it means to pick the pen up and become the author, not to be the person who is just a, an auxiliary character in your adoptive family story, your friend's story, whoever's story it is, even your first family story, but to really own it to really be the one writing what happens next, what happens now, reframing what's happened before, because you have the pen now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, even when the things that happen, you know, I, one, one of the things as an adoptee, right? Like as adoptees we're we are so, we are too often at the mercy of well, of so many things out of our control, right? <laughs> yes. Um, but you know, we're it's like we're at the mercy of the narrative and exactly what you're yes. talking about of, of our adaptive families' expectations, society's expectations, all this. I mean, you you've talked about it so eloquently, so many people have. And when you 
make the choice to say, I can handle whatever happens, right? Like, I'm going to proceed because I trust that I can handle it. And and the times when I pulled back were because I knew I couldn't handle it and honoring sure. that too, right? Yeah. Um, That it's just, you know, the searching journey. It's not just the searching. It's the existing as an adoptee is it's just hard yeah you know, because like, yeah <laughs> it's hard because it's like you don't know you okay so i've just went through my own i've been going on my own therapy journey for the first time and started six months ago and i needed to do it now because at this current moment i am more whole than i've ever been even when i've been on this journey and i think what is so what makes it so hard is that we our wholeness is there but it has just either been hidden by ourselves hidden from other people the pieces that break off we don't know where they are and how to put them back together and then when we do put them there sometimes they fall back out and it's like how do we glue all of this together and there is no like there is a playbook for it but there is no playbook we have to write it ourselves and that's why it's so important to have conversations like this and why I cannot say how much I appreciate you sharing this because the vulnerability necessary, the bravery necessary to tell a story in this way is not only important and powerful, but hard to come by a lot of times. It does help to model for other people in our community what that looks like. And we have folks like Nicole Chung and people who have worked in academia specifically who have been like, developing and telling these stories in different forms in ways that help people who that act as those models. And we don't have enough of them. That's right. And so it's why it's what's so important for us to continue to have this type of conversation. And again, I've probably said the word appreciate like a hundred times in the last 10 minutes, but like, I cannot appreciate you enough for doing so here on this platform in this way, because it is just so profound and powerful to me to hear you in such a privilege. I want to say that yeah. actually, it's a privilege to hear you share that with me. And even if this never went out like in public, it is a privilege to have been on the receiving end of your story because it's helping me to think about even in this moment, my own story and my own journey with some of these different parts and pieces of this experience. So thank you. You're so welcome. And I, you know, I feel that having reading always your awesome Instagram posts, like, and seeing your journey, witnessing it, and being very honored to 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 witness it. That, um, you know, you're vulnerable. Don't don't um, don't undersell yourself, Mr. Armstrong. <laughs> your well, vulnerability that. is so deeply impactful, also, and to me. And I'm, you know an OG at this point. I mean, I'm so much older than so many of you guys. And, um, and I'm just learning so much from from all of you too. Well, I appreciate that. As we move to the end here, I want to touch on a piece that you just released. And maybe this is getting back into that vulnerable space a little bit. But it's titled My Dead Mother and Me. It's infused with like love and grief and pain and power and softness. It's really hard to describe when I was trying to write the words to describe what I felt after reading it. It was hard. To, I was just writing words. I'm like, I don't know what any of this means, but I feel it in my bones. Like these are the things that I feel when I'm reading this. 
Um, it's placed within a backdrop of a lot of different things. Birthdays, death days, reunion, identity, genocide, war, really terrible things, the present, the past, and potentially looking ahead at the future. And like literally internally in your body. Like there's a whole bunch of backdrops to this. It seems really obvious having listed all those things out and for anybody that's read it, but what made this the right time for this piece to, to bloom, to, to find its way into the public? Because I feel like it's something you could have held to yourself, but it's something that you've allowed us to, you shared with us. You've given us permission to, to enter into. What made now the right time for that? Um, well, first of all, thank you for all those kind words. Um, I had attended an event, uh, an adoptee event, and was speaking with um, an adoptee, uh, a transracial adoptee. Um, and somehow in the conversation, I it was issues of current war in Gaza, what it is to be an anti-Zionist Jew, whatever language you want to call it, someone who's deeply opposed to this war, um, came up in this conversation. And I said, you know, talking about it parallels like what it has been my journey as a Jewish woman talking, being critical, openly critical of Israel, openly mm. critical of uh, the current state of Zionism, if not the original state of Zionism, has very much, is very much parallels what it's like to be an adoptee talking <sighs> about adoption in an open way and, and looking at the negatives, right? Like people are so invested in these narratives and it's like their worldview will collapse if you just pull one thread and make them say like, hey, wait a minute, let me just, will you just listen to this Palestinian? Will you just listen to this adoptee? Will you not pathologize me and say, you just had a bad experience or you're a bad Jew, right? Like, so it's been really on my mind and percolating somewhere in there. But when I, so, so I knew that somewhere, and that kind of happens with my essays, like sometimes something it's. Some, some of them just pour out, but some of them it's something was like months of just figuring itself out it, within me. Um, but getting to Budapest and being in Budapest where I didn't really remember uh, or didn't know the history of, you know, what had happened to Hungarian Jews in Budapest and having this profound experience, but it also being my birthday and, and the fact that you know, I, I've known, um, I found my birth mother, my first mother in 1999. So in 1999, I learned that she died the day before my birthday. Um, so I've had that information and I learned she died of colon cancer the day before my 27th birthday at 50. So I've had that information for, you know, over 20 years, 24 years. Um, you know, the human body's capacity to process grief and to really kind of process the hurried stuff is uh, interesting. Um, and what's happened in the last several years, I and I learned in 19, so in 2008, I saw, so it's almost like roughly 10 years, 2009, I learned the truth of the, my birth, that she did not know she was pregnant. I was not with her for three months. She went to the hospital with a stomach ache, had a baby, and her brother told people that she had a surgery to clear an intestinal blockage. So I've known that piece since 2008. Um, 
And then in 2022, I had met with her husband in 2008, but then I met with him again in 2022. And in 2022, I learned that she was diagnosed with cancer exactly nine months to death, right? And so over those course, those like three specific points of information, I felt sad on January 11th. Okay, it's her death day, my birthday. Oh, she couldn't take one more day. I mean, I've written that line at nauseam. She couldn't take one more year of that day. But something happened in the last like three years, maybe, um, where the enormity of that and a feeling uh, like it was my fault she died, that I killed her. Mm. Um, the deep, the deep well of grief um, that January 11th is for me um, has only, and I have to believe it's, be, you know, if I was religious, I would say God, the universe, whatever, has taken care of me and I'm ready to feel that safely because I don't, I don't know what I would have done feeling it too much earlier in my life. Sure. Frankly. And, um, and so that is my very long answer to your very short question, which is why now was here I was in Budapest. I had had this idea was like percolating anyway about these, the, the similarities between the narrative breaking down the narratives, the similarities and the responses I get. Um, and it just coincided. Oh, and, you know, I was, so this was all in my head. And then on the night of the 10th, I was, I had a lot of trouble sleeping my first few nights in, in Budapest that first week. And I thought it was jet lag, but it was probably anxiety in leading up to the 11th. Mm -hmm. And on the night of the 10th, going to the 11th, I happened to, there was this article in the Atlantic about mycotumorisms, about these cells, these fetal cells that live in, you know, that go travel back and forth between womb and mother and fetus and mother and where they're found. And when I read the passage that they were found, they can even be found in the colon, middle of the night, my husband's asleep next to me, I just start sobbing. And I know that that's, that that's it. That's what I'm writing about when I wake up in the morning. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And that like even science, I didn't say science that you brought into this, <laughs> but I, like, that's what I was referring to with when I talk about the, in, like the literal internal, I never heard of this concept before. And as, and it, like, as of recording, we are maybe one week away from welcoming our first child into the world. And I, like I was really sitting with that concept of this, this deep connection. And like, even though they call it, even though they, uh, they called it like unwanted invaders, I think is what mm -hmm. one of the descriptors yeah. was. I couldn't help but think about how intimately connected mothers remain to children, no matter what, no matter if they have no relationship to them at all, but right. just that deep, deep, deep connection and in a way like they call it unwanted but for me i don't know like when i was thinking about it, i just kept thinking about love and like that is it's just like the the bits of love that remain even when you're separated for whatever reason 
even if something tragic or terrible happens, or even if it's just going to school, going to college, just, just moving away. Like there's this love that's always there. Even if like the relationship is Rocky, whatever. Like, I don't know. It's just like, and I appreciated you writing about that. Cause I was just like, I've been thinking, you know, just, just pre parenthood mode thinking about sure. like, what those relationships will look like. And it just really was really profound to me. And then the other thing, not to spoil too much from the article, everyone needs to read it as it's linked down here in the show notes was, but I thought about it because of the story you've told, you were walking around Budapest and you happen to find yourself at a chapel and you happen to sit down in a pew and it just happened to be a stern that was listed there on the thing. And I would just, after now hearing your story, I just thinking about, again, these single moments in time where we find ourselves right where we need to be. And even if we don't know it, even if we don't know it, and it's just such a powerful, powerful thing. Um, even when laced with grief, I can't help but feel some of the love that remains and just how connected we all are on a communal level. Yeah. From the individual level to the communal and how it really welcomes us all in if we allow it to. Yeah, so totally. I, appreciate and I, it. I, I think that, um, you know, that's if we can remember that. Oh, maybe the world yeah. will be a little bit better. Um, I know I said before we got on here, these are about 30 to 45 minute conversations, but sometimes they go over and I'm looking at the timestamp right now. It is crossing one hour and 11 minutes and it has been if it's felt like 10. It's been an incredible experience to sit here in conversation with you. I'm sorry we haven't done it sooner. Can't wait to do it more. Um, I have two more questions before we wrap up. The first one is you've dropped not just a lot of knowledge about your own experience, but just a lot of things we can take away. You've done a lot of teaching here. Um, whether you feel like you have or not, you definitely have. And it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of, of labor to do. Who are you currently learning from? Who do you find is teaching you at the moment? Um, I mean, I think first my children, I think having young adult children and, um, you know, as you will soon see, it's <laughs> real humbling, Patrick, <laughs> this parenting thing. Um, but I think, you know, there, as a lot of parents will tell you, right? Like, so I think there's, you know, on a personal, not a daddy, but even adoption connected, because I've had to look at, you know, parenting mistakes and my own limitations as a human being and as a mother. And a lot of them connect to, to unresolved adoption stuff, you know, and mm. so that they, they teach me. And I think on a broader community level, I think the entire active, vocal, transracial, transnational adoptee community has, uh, you guys are such a gift. You're such a gift to the adoptee community because it, I like how I under, you know, like an in earthquake, it's like the you know, a 3.2 earthquake, like 3.3 isn't just a little bit stronger. It's like 100, it's sure. 100 times stronger. It's like, that's how I think of like, whatever my issues and my understanding of issues as a same race domestic adoptee are, you, the challenges and issues and grief for you and for trans, not, not just you, is exponentially worse and exponentially more complicated. And I think that that, um, you know, like learning that and staying present to that story and hopefully also 
you know, letting people who talk to me about adoption know about that. Uh, because I think the whole, you know, saved better life thing, mm-hmm. it's bad enough for all of us, but but for the transracial community, it's oh, just that much harder <laughs> and, and the grace and honesty that so many of you um, speak about it with is as an incredible learning opportunity. I appreciate you saying that. I I find it very interesting because I'm in this mode right now where I, I I mean I love being a part of this community, particularly you know identifying as a transracial intercountry adoptee, and I also find myself feeling like I, I want to learn about the domestic experience more because I feel like I wouldn't even ca- I wouldn't even necessarily consider it more. I I like the metaphor. And, and and I'm also thinking about it as like, it's just a different part of the earthquake. It's not, I don't feel like it's necessarily exponentially different, but if that, I mean, it, uh, you're saying it, so I will run with that and say that, but <laughs> it just, it's just a different part of the earthquake. And I think as a community, we have to understand that no matter where on the Richter scale, no matter what the f- frequency or whatever is happening during the earthquake, we're all part of that same quake. And we all have to, we, we, it behooves us to understand all of the experiences. And I've been dropping the statistic a lot recently because I just found out about it and I want to tell people about it because I don't think necessarily a lot of people know, but like, so Korean adoptees considered the largest or are the largest inter-country group at 200,000. In 2000, the U.S. Census started to count adopted people on the census for the first time in households. That number in 2000 was 5 million. 5 million. And I think something that we don't recognize enough is just how many people are a part of this community. And so when you talk about like the exponential differences in our experiences, those things do exist, those differences. But it's in my mind, it just furthers for me the reason why we all need to be in community with each other. Again, going way back to the beginning of like when we start to do this and we find people who maybe aren't like our like flavor or cup of tea or on the same wave that we're writing, that's totally fine. But it's because there are so many of us and so many different experiences out there that there is always going to be someone for you in this community and they might not even have the same kind of experiences as you like you might find your best in community with a domestic same race adoptee you might find that you you vibe with those people more and it's so important because that is how we change this intangible narrative this thing that we can't see can't quantify that's how we do it is by coming together in this way and that's one of the reasons i want to do this podcast why i like podcasting in general and why i'm so appreciative of you for sitting down to have this conversation because i think it it's just i'm going to use it as an example of why it's important to talk about it because it really really is and i think everything that you've shared here is is lessons learned for us that we can walk away with and become a stronger more full more whole community Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. It, it, the honor is all mine. We'll share the <laughs> honor. I get into compliment offs all the time with guests. It's real. It's probably <laughs> not the right thing to do, but I, I enjoy doing it because I love to hype other people up. Speaking of which, my last question, as always, for people listening out there, for this audience, for people watching on YouTube, how do we support you 
going forward? Uh, you could follow me on Medium. Um, that's where I put my essays. Um, follow me on Instagram. Um, and I think, you know, engage in conversation. If you, you know, see a post, um, let's chat. You know, that's, yeah. I, I think, I think that's all. I mean, I know, you know, Medium is, requires a membership. If somebody reads, uh, is not a Medium member and is interested in reading one of my essays, please reach out to me, DM me, and I will send you the friend link. Um, mm. I don't automatically put the friend link up because I, it is a way I earn a living. Yeah. Um, so, but I'm, but I am happy always for adoptees uh, to send a friend link so that they can read it um, with pleasure. Well, it's very generous of you. Um, folks, you know, we're going to have all of these things linked in the show notes or Instagram, uh, the medium accounts, those will all be there for you. Mindy, Thank you again. I think I've said it about 30,000 times now, but I so, so much appreciate you taking the time, taking an extra 30 minutes to sit down and have this conversation with me. It really, really means a lot. Thank you so much for being here. You're, thank you so much for having me. This is absolutely amazing. Absolutely. Um, everybody else, you know, new episodes of this show drop every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, as well as on YouTube. If you want to support us, leave us a rating or review on any of those platforms. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Conversation Pod Peace. Lastly, make sure you subscribe to the newsletter. Conversation Peace, the newsletter comes out every Mondays. Paid subscribers get exclusive access to our companion show, Conversation Notes, every Wednesday that comes out, as well as the poetry series, A Word. I guarantee the episode following this one is going to have a lot of things to unpack. So make sure if you want to listen to that, you upgrade that uh, Substack account. And I appreciate everybody who's been following me over there as well. We got a lot of great content and more great conversations coming up very, very soon. And I cannot wait to share it all with you. But until then, I've been the titular Patrick. This has been Conversation Peace. See y'all soon.